would to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Before we read this passage, let us seek God in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your holy word. We know that all of scripture is God-breathed. We know that all of it is profitable. We pray that you would use your word to deal with all our hearts. We might be a peculiar, treasured people, your own possession in this world. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. Again, I remind you this is God's word. Uh, this passage deals with something that um, I know many people, when they read it in scripture, they're not even sure exactly what to do with this. Why is it they can eat certain animals and not others? All that being what it is in this passage, there's a lot of instruction here. It always applies to us because everything from God's word is profitable. And I trust by the Lord's help and grace that we might gain profit from this chapter. Again, God's word. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You should not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You should not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep the goat, the deer, and the gazelle, uh, the roebuck, the wild goat, and ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. The flesh you shall not eat, and the carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, uh, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the uh, cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat, and all winged insects, insects are un, unclean for you. They should not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You should not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. But you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. 
And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, then the Lord your God, uh, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word for his glory and our spiritual benefit. It was in one of the readings um, in Richard Sibbs we've been going through. There's a sentence there that says something like this, that when there's a fire in the house, people often grab their treasure first. You don't go in there to say, hey, there's a fork in the kitchen, I'm going to save it. Often people will go for what is deemed very important, some treasure of some sort, either their money, a bank account, whatever it is, or their gold if they have it, their portrait, what, family heirloom, whatever it is, they go, they'll try to save that if they can, if they have that opportunity. And that's a natural thing. And men treasure many things. Antiques, baseball cards, sentimental items, and heirloom jewelry, you can name it, and people have a love for those things, and they cherish it. And that's what we do. And we should not set our hearts upon them. But what does God treasure? And that's what is amazing from this passage, that God doesn't treasure things. He treasures his people whom he has chosen. And that is what God is saying to Israel. You are my treasured possession, he says in verse 2. In the verse 1, the first sentence, you are the sons of the Lord your God. They're his sons. They are chosen, holy, set apart for him, and a people for his treasured possession. That's what he delights in. And there are other passages in the Old Testament where that same truth is established. God wanted his people to know they were his treasured possession. And as a result... They ought to live a different life from the rest of the world. That's the point of all these passages. These are not just kind of arbitrarily made. God has a purpose. But as his treasured possession, they're to be different from the rest of the world. So as I look at this, I want to break it down into three areas in which God's treasured people are to be different. As sons of Yahweh, sons of God, to be different from the rest of the world in the area of their grief in the area of their sustenance, in the area of their wealth. And I want to unpack each one of those things. But before we do, I just want to reflect upon something that we mentioned before, but something we need to always remember. As God says that about Israel, that same language is used for the new covenant people. In 1 Peter 2.9, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have become his chosen possession. 
that we might show forth his marvelous light to the rest of the world. So we are considered his treasure people in the new covenant. So as we talk about how it applies to the old covenant, it applies to us too, as we understand it through the New Testament. So the first thing I want us to see here is this. As God's treasure possession, we deal with our grief differently in verses 1 to 2. That was a very interesting thing because trying to understand this whole thing after uh, in the, uh, the last part of verse 1, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. And critical in that phrase is for the dead. It's what they're doing for the dead and most likely is related to some ritual to one of the deities of that time. They're not to cut themselves. And that issue of cutting, we see another aspect of it in 1 Kings 18.28. If you remember, Elijah was calling upon the God of Israel, and the Baal worshippers were calling upon Baal. They wanted to see who is the real God. And there was a contest. And so the Baal worshippers did all they could. They yelled and everything to get Baal to bring down fire and consume the offering. And nothing happened. So what did they do? In their frenzy, they actually cut themselves. The same verb is used there. And you'll find the same verb and the same idea established in Jeremiah and other verses where uh, it's a ritual for the dead and everything. They would cut themselves. And God said, don't do that. You are a treasure possession. You're not to cut themselves like the rest of the world. The way you grieve. Now, this seems to make sense. If you look at it just without looking at kind of, well, why would you cut yourself? Could you not see grief overwhelming you? You just want to pull out your hair out of grief and, and despair and angst and everything. And people will hurt themselves and everything. No doubt they wanted to display how much they missed their loved one. But they were not to do that. As God treasured possession. Yes it may be for the pagan deities. Yes these foreign gods. They might be doing it. But they're not to show their grief. Their sorrow. Like the world does. It's not a bizarre practice. We're not to be like them. In some parts of New Guinea. It is written. That a joint of a finger. Is removed. By the bereaved person as a sign of grief. Right now. There are some special sacrifices for the dead that happens in different parts of the world. Out of ancestral worship. That in a cemetery often after the dead some people will actually stay by the graveside. Waiting for the spirit if somehow to bring them back to the grave. Some practices... Uh, have existed through history, and in some areas there's rumors that it still continues that a widow is actually sacrificed to die with her husband who's already dead, either in the fire or to be buried alive. There are many practices that go on in this world. And that's how the world exhibits grief. And Calvin talks about this and says, this is what happens when you don't understand God, when you don't have a relationship with Him. And is it not true if you have only this world, grief can overwhelm you? But the new covenant people are to be different. Just like Israel was to be different. They're not to practice the same things. But there is something that Calvin says and other theologians have mentioned and Christians have written about that is often very 
much neglected in our generation, the idea of immoderate grief. If we have grief for the loved one, isn't that appropriate? Yes. But can there be an excessive sort of grief that dishonors the Lord? Yes. Example is what we find in verse 1, but also what could happen to an individual. This sort of immoderate grief. And that's the point that Calvin actually focuses on. You see, for believers, if we lose our loved one, if someone dies, what do we do? We do grieve. The Bible does say we grieve. But if we have an immoderate grief that it overwhelms us, doesn't it say something about the way we're reacting to God? We're very displeased with God for his sovereign prerogatives. We don't like that God has taken our loved one. That we refuse to be consoled because it is not right that this has happened. It's ruined my life. We question his goodness and wisdom, even his justice in doing this. Does it not suggest that we have set our affections perhaps too much on this world, on the loved one? And the idea is that we too could grieve in a way this honors the Lord, but to be different. Now, I am not denying the Bible encourages grief. Yes, of course. But do we have hope? Yes, we do. Paul says to the Thessalonians, regarding those who have fallen asleep, a euphemism for those who have died in the Lord, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The world grieves without hope. We recognize in the death of the loved one who loves the Lord. That he or she is indeed in the presence of the Lord. And that we grieve with hope that one day we too shall be raised and to be in the presence of the Lord. Knowing that God has already taken care of our loved one. Death is not the last act for the believer. It is a passageway unto glory. Glory to be with the Lord. We grieve knowing that Christ has a victory over death. And the New Testament uses a euphemism of falling asleep to denote our death as a passageway into life everlasting. And see, that's what God is telling Israel. Don't be like the rest of the world. As they grieve, as they wail, as they cut themselves, no, you're a different people. There were times of grief. There were set limited times that God would give to his people or the people would have. They may rent their garments or whatever it is, but they were not allowed to cut themselves. And some theologians have pointed this out, that there may be a reason for this, that we're created in the image of God. This is our body that God has given us as stewards, that we're not to destroy it. It's not ours to destroy. And it's a simple truth that our culture needs to remember. That God has given us this body. We're not to destroy it that is going on with what's going on in our culture there's another way in people where even believers, sometimes out of self-pity, they're overwhelmed in grief. What do they do? They don't know what to do, so they end up getting drunk because it doesn't matter. My loved one is gone. I'm going to go ahead and do what I want. I don't care. I feel so dejected. I refuse to be consoled. I am so embittered because of what God has done. And there are people that do that. And brothers and sisters, may I challenge you. Cast your cares upon the Lord. In God's providence, he knows what he does, and he does it well. 
One of the interesting things as you get older, and I'm going to be saying this more and more as I get older, is you realize your days are numbered. We always knew that. You know, there are things I wanted to do. I have X amount of years. I love to read these 12 volumes and those 12 volumes and that 10 volume set. You kind of do the numbers. I'm not going to be able to do all of that. Unless I don't sleep and eat and you know, anything. And then you have to start measuring yourself. Where, what's going on? And you have to look at what is most important. And then your loved ones pass away. And God in his infinite wisdom knows what he is doing to remind us we are mortals. We're to look to him. And when we grieve, even to follow him in that area. Not like the rest of the world. So he's telling them, don't cut yourself. Uh, don't, uh, apparently they're ripping their hair out. This baldness to indicate their grief. We're not to do it like the world. We grieve with hope. The second thing is the area of sustenance. In verses 3 to 21, you have these animals they can eat and some animals they cannot eat. Now this may seem strange. There are some interesting articles that have been written over the years that seem to explain it and several commentators are drawn to it. And I, I heard about it when I was in seminary. I think it's a helpful, uh, helpful way of looking at this. Basically, what is that fish? It has scales and fins. And if you have things living in the water that doesn't have scales and fins, then it's not a whole complete fish in its class. So you can't eat that. That's considered unclean. And the point of all of this and these animals, like, uh, uh, like a pig, it parts a hoof, uh, but yet it doesn't chew the cud because it eats everything. It's unclean. It is so that they might be holy to the Lord. And why this is so important to Israel is because why can't we eat what we want to eat, man? I, I might not have all these animals. If they're dead, can I eat it? God says, no, even in this area, you follow me. But I am the sovereign Lord. I define what is good and what is bad, what is clean and what is unclean. That he gets to do that. It started from the Garden of Eden. You can eat everything except one tree. What a gracious God. And what does Adam do? Well, I want that one tree. I got everything else in the world, but I want that one tree. God defines it. And the question for Israel is, will we eat to our heart's content by our own will and desire? Or will we submit to God, even in this basic area? Will we let God define what is good and bad, what is clean and unclean? And God is saying, I get to define it. For you shall be holy to the Lord. If you look at the end of verse 21, near the end. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That's why they're set apart for him. In verse 21, they're not to eat dead animals. We already know from other passages, they had to bleed the animal. And this wouldn't have been properly drained. Boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, many commentators think, it's related to uh, this pagan Canaanite idea of their fertility right that they practiced in. There's debate is if that's really true or not. We don't know, but they, were under, they understood that they couldn't do this. But God gets to define it. And here's the simple point. 
God was telling Israel, in the most basic area of your life, of your sustenance, I am Lord. You trust me. And John Calvin, looking at this, he noted that this wasn't just to draw food ethics or food rules. That wasn't the point, he says. And I think he's right. The ultimate goal, he says, is that he wanted them to be unstained from the world, to be different and undefiled. Not to be defiled with the unclean animals. That's what he wanted to teach them. That there's a thing that is holy and clean. And there's a thing unclean and wicked. And in that sense they're to be different from the rest of the nations. Because the nations did whatever they did. They ate all these animals. He wanted them to be different. And that is true for New Testament believers, that God is calling us to be undefiled, to be different from the rest of the world. This careful distinction God makes of the animals was to teach Israel that they're to be holy unto the Lord, a people set apart, separated and distinct. Peter, after he declared that we're a chosen people, uh, a God's own possession, he wrote these words right after. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, rest of the world honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Paul says we're not to be conformed to this world. The idea is the same thing. We're to be separate. We're to be different from the rest of the world. Yes, it's talking about food, but God gets to define what is good and what is bad, what is holy and what is wicked. And he was instructing them. Now that's interesting because you're saying, okay, I get the point. But he continues to do that. What is moral and what is immoral. Oh, surely sleeping with someone is okay. Surely if I steal a little bit, it's okay. Surely if, if I do this or that, it's okay. That's the way we want to define it. But that's not how God defines it. And even to this day, there's a fight and battle against the Lord in this matter. No, God gets to uh, define it as his treasure possession. He does. But I do also want to make... Mentioned, and this is a second point I want to draw from this passage from verses 3 to 21 the whole issue of eating food. In Mark 7 18 19, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared, all foods clean. The idea of the New Testament has rendered its judgment on these laws. That it no longer applies to us. It was to serve a purpose to bring them to this point. But at this moment it no longer serves that purpose. He declared all foods clean. You can eat pigs. That's what he's saying. It no longer defines you. Then Peter has a vision. You know we read about this in Acts chapter 10. These reptiles and everything in a vision that God says to Peter. Notice what he says. Kill and eat. They have to kill. Drain the blood. But you can eat these unclean animals. 
And three times Peter said, I've never done that. And notice what God says to Peter. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Already in two passages, God makes it clear that dispensation, that time of looking at what is clean and unclean, that has shifted. Food is not the matter. To be morally different from the rest of the world, to be a peculiar people, that is the concern. New Testament teaches that all foods are clean. And God declares it so. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, or no better off if we do. And Paul says in uh, chapter 10, two chapters after, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Calvin points out, since that is the case where God has permitted all foods, we ought to acknowledge Him in it. We see His bounty and goodness, how He provides for us. He says everything is permissible. And if that is the case, several other things come out. Not only regarding grief, but our sustenance, we're to be different. And when it comes to food and all the provisions that God gives us, the first thing we do is we acknowledge it comes from God. He's the one that blesses you with food and all that you need. The second thing is you thank him for his bounty and how important that is. How important it is you pray with thanksgiving for the food. How important it is you acknowledge his good hand. Remember Barzillai? He's 80 years old. He can't really taste if it's good or bad. God can curse a person where they can have everything. And they cannot enjoy it. You thank him for what he has given, uh, given to you. Not only that, if that is the case, you continue to ask him, give us this day our daily bread. You look to him to provide for you. And through all of this, you see his goodness in permitting all these things. That's what God is calling us to do. And as these things happen, these basic necessities are given, you acknowledge God and thank Him and worship Him. It should drive you to see, not the gift, but the giver. God, how good you are. When we were coming to church today, I thought, wow, I got everything packed. I'm ready. Let's go. Just when we're leaving, I'm like, ah, I forgot this and this and this. It never entered my mind. I never forget that. And I had to go back. My wife and I drove back. And I got, we got here just in time. But what did I have to, I, we prayed in the car, Lord, if it pleases you, help us to get there in time. And in the Lord's kindness, we made it in time. We recognize everything comes from God's hand. Every little event that we look and we recognize His goodness. And through all of these things, we see that it is God who's doing it. So why is God teaching Israel this? I am the one who provides for you. If the end result of His provision is you're going, whoa, look at this. 
And that's it. You missed it. If it comes, you say, my Lord, my God, how good you are. It should lead to worship and thanksgiving. Utterly depend upon him and give him thanks. And lastly, in verses 22 to 29, not only in the matter of grief we're to be different as God treasure possessed, not only in the matter of sustenance we're to be different from the rest of the world because it's God's goodness to us, but even in the area of our wealth and what God gives us, we're to be different as treasure possessions. Now this is something that people don't like to talk about. Tithing. Now, we've touched upon this topic at various times, and I'm not going to go through all of that. The idea that New Testament uh, does not um, forbid or does not say it has ceased the issue of tithing. But the issue of giving from what the Lord has given, that definitely is taught. And surely we gain instruction from what the Lord teaches in the Old Testament. And tithing happens before the Mosaic Covenant. So what does God say to them? In verse 22, you shall tithe or give a tenth of all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So every year as they get X amount, they're supposed to give a tenth to the Lord. And with that, they're to eat. And remember the Levites, they're supposed to receive a, a part of that. And he gives the provisions. If it's too far away, sell it, turn into money, then go to the place he has assigned. And over there, eat before the Lord to your heart's content. That's the goodness of the Lord. And they're to also remember the poor in the third year. Uh, some say that's the other 10%. Maybe two 10% at that time. Whatever it is, in the third year, they're to remember not only the Levites in that town, but other needy people. But what is assumed through all of this? In verse 24, we learn this. When the Lord your God blesses you, in verse 24... They give of what the Lord has given when the Lord has blessed them. What are they recognizing when this happens? God had blessed them. God had provided for them. And he said, as I bless you, I want you to offer to me and rejoice in my presence. To eat in my presence. But I have blessed you. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is a simple truth. Often lost. Oh yeah, yeah, God provides. And God blesses. But it's my hard work. It's my contacts, my skills, my gifts. And we dealt with this previously in chapter 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy. They're to learn that God had blessed them. And they're to also remember, as they've been blessed, to not forget those who are in need and to care for them as well. And notice what it says in verse 29. When they take care of the fatherless, the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled. Not just one bite, but to be filled. Shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do, that He will continue to bless as you give liberally to others. But what struck me in this passage in dealing with tithes and offering to the Lord is verse 23. 
They're to tithe everything. You shall eat the tithe of the grain of your wine and of your oil and of the firstborn of your herd in verse 23 and flock. Why? That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now how does that work? Now what God is saying is, as you remember me that I am the one who calls you to offer, as I bless you, you bring it regularly, annually, the tithe. That, it says in here, you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. How does that work? One commentator put it like this. By returning a tithe to God regularly, the people would learn to fear the Lord and know that their prosperity did not depend on irrigation or advanced agricultural techniques, but on the beneficence and provision of their God. The idea is, as I do this every year, as I continually offer to the Lord a tenth, I am reminded that God is the one who does this. And I learn to fear Him. Not in the sense I'm afraid of Him, but to revere Him. He is the one that enables me to give. You understand, you neglect that, often you forget about God. Your weekly giving, your annual giving, and all those things, it's a reminder that God has done it. You're frankly acknowledging Him. We're painfully reminded on April 15th that someone else wants our money. Twice a year, if you own property, you've got to pay a property tax and school taxes. It's an unpleasant experience. So all of a sudden, you have some money in your checking account, it's not there anymore. That's a reminder, not in a good way. But as we give to the Lord, we're reminded He's the one that originally gave to me. And I'm to be different from the rest of the world as God's treasure possesses, and I will show my obligation to the Lord in thanksgiving. As I do it regularly, I realize God has provided for me. Now, I've touched upon this when we dealt with 2 Corinthians at different parts of reading of the Old Testament about the offering and everything. And I just want to challenge you with this, with this one thought. Piety expresses itself in various ways in your life. Your fear of the Lord. But one of the ways is in your checkbook. Look, if you say, I don't want to give to this church, that's fine. I'm not here drumming up money. But I am here to capture your heart and ask the Lord to move your heart to please Him in this matter. Because the world will capture you. Now you don't understand, I can't give. You have to give because He has blessed. That's what He calls you to do. As the Lord blesses. He's not asking you to hit this metric as the Lord blesses you. That's where you see where your devotion and trust and faith is. Am I trusting the Lord, what He has given me? And all these things point to God's goodness. He provides for them. He, their produce increases as, as the land increases, as the animals are given to them. It shows God's goodness to them. The food, the produce, the sustenance, the increase, their wealth. It comes from God. 
And they're to remember God's goodness and liberality. Brothers and sisters, we're in a similar position, but in a better situation. As God provides for us, he provides for us as our Heavenly Father. He's become our Heavenly Father by first sending his Son to purchase and redeem us from our sins and hell. He has adopted us. And we are his. And we can thank God for his inexpressible glorious gift. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. As sons redeemed. We have, a, we have more than anybody else in the world. More to, be for, more to be thankful for than anybody else. So don't think about well I got to give a tenth. Or uh, what, what does this mean or that. Remember God has given you everything in Christ. And for that be thankful. And from that the liberality flows. We're not going to take anything out of this world. Bill Gates will die without being able to take whatever he has. And the poorest man will die will not be able to take whatever he has. But we will be held accountable with what we have and how we use it for his glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have sent your son and he has paid the penalty for our sins. And through him we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places richly given to us. As our heavenly father you tell us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you like the things we read of. You will care for us. But may that bounty force us and drive us to you the giver of all good things. Especially the giver of our Lord Jesus, who died for us. We pray for friends and people in this room that know of this gift of Jesus Christ coming. And yet their hearts are estranged from him. They've not received the gift by faith. Oh Lord, make their hearts soft and tender. To see the greatness of your gift for sinners through Christ. That they might see their desperate need for forgiveness because of their sins. Might flee to you. Might find in you forgiveness and hope. Hear us we pray. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Please turn in your hymnals as we respond in singing whatever God